Welcome to this week's edition of Record Roundtable, where we talk about a bassist, a guitarist, a drummer, a band. This week we're talking about Rush. This is Caleb Robinson speaking. I'm here with... I'm Dax. Jared. It's Tyler here. And again, this week we're talking about Rush and how did everybody feel about talking about Rush? Or how did everybody feel about Rush? Not too bad. Pretty darn great. I enjoyed it. Ooh, we all it was used... my selection for the month of May. Well, way to go. Caleb, how did you feel about it? It was all right. It was all right. Yeah, yeah. That's, I didn't love it. You know that first the song you played just then mm-hmm. sucks. First two albums suck. The, yeah. I don't think the second oh. one sucks as bad, but the first one definitely is not good. They Fly hadn't by found their thing great. yet. They hadn't found no. their thing. I think they were beginning to find it on Fly By Night, and they have a couple of good songs on there. Mm-hmm. But the first song is like ACDC Smash with Led Zeppelin, and it's just hard rock, that, generic hard rock garbage. I read that Cream was a big influence on them. Well, I couldn't tell. I, I feel like it comes through a little bit in their, their beginnings, but uh, Neil Peart uh, really changed their sound when he joined. The yes, drum, the drummer, right? Yes, the drummer. Thank you. The he main, did. the main drummer. The first drummer left before they toured the U.S. I yeah, he left very early into their starting. His name was John Rudsey, the original drummer. And what albums did he perform on? Probably just the first one, if if any at all, I'd imagine. I know I he, he did a single. No album. I know he did a single, but I don't think he was on an album. He played on the first album. John Rutsey did. You, you're wrong. See? He can't change their style if he nasty. was performing on the first album. Neil Peart was the, the primary lyricist for the band. Mm-hmm. He, uh, the drummer, of course, which is, he's like hugely influential uh, in regards to drummers. He is. Very true. He's mentioned School of Rock. Yes, he is. He's mentioned he's so a good. lot of things. I watched a like twenty minute video of just Rush and Neil Peart references from TV it, and film. And there film. you go. That's interesting. It would make sense that they would be influenced by Cream uh, if once Neil Peart is in there because Ginger Baker was also a very good drummer. Mm-hmm. He's a, and he and Neil Peart share similarities in drumming. Share similarities in drumming style. Yeah. Uh, Neil Peart was influenced a lot by uh, Buddy Rich. who was like a jazz drummer. Yeah. Ginger Baker was a jazz drummer as well initially. Oh, yeah. Yes. So we listened to uh, quite a few albums. We skipped to some. Uh, Tyler, what was your favorite album? If you had to say. If I had to say, I'd probably say it was Permanent Waves. Permanent Waves. That's a pretty good one. It's got my two favorite Rush songs on it. Mm, okay. What are your two favorite Rush songs? The Spirit of Radio and Free Will. Oh, you son of a bitch. Those are my two favorites. Hey. How about that? Oh, man. That's that's the album right before old Tom Sawyer. Yes. Well, how about this? Do you want to pick one and I pick one? I'll pick Free Will. There you go. My favorite. They were Canadian. They're from Toronto. That's true. Pretty cool place. This says that they formed in the neighborhood of Willowdale in Toronto. You know Willowdale? No. Me either. No. So you'll move that. They did a cover of a Buddy Holly, Not Fade Away. How about that? It's so, their first single. That was before Neil Peart joined. Yes, it was. Really? Why don't you talk about Neil Peart's, a little more in-depth, Neil Peart's. He's yep. drumming. Um, what's the word? <laughs> drumming? No. What he brought to the group? Style. Yeah. Influence. He's as. Yeah. Did you did you read? You know, you say that it changed when he comes in. 
Well, he is the primary lyricist, like I said earlier. Yeah, but we notice a big difference in style, stylistic changes when they become Rush. Moved more into prog rock Mm -hmm. from where they were coming from. They did? Expand on that. Yeah. They had uh, the initial shift from hard rock into like more of a prog rock. Mm -hmm. And then right around like 82, 83, they shifted into more like synthy sounds. Yeah, they did start adding a lot more synth in there. And then as they're as the discography progresses into the late eighties, it kind of just turns to pop. A little in, bit. In a way. Like it's it gets pretty difficult. My least favorite of the albums that we've listened to was probably Hold Your Fire. Oh my. Which is you like that one? I I enjoyed it, yes. I enjoyed that. But I, I also kinda like new wave pop silliness don't call it new wave it's it's considered new wave on here genre call it new wave oh my goodness that's that's (laughs) sad it's just like i can see why you wouldn't like it it just reminds me of all the things rock turned into in the late 80s Mm. when it when it just went pop and then it uses the synth is boring the guitar tones are not are also not really interesting anymore they just sound like everything else you know they're, they're just there for some type of a shimmery thing and then they just some they just sing over it and there you go and it's like okay well it's pretty disappointing coming from the previous releases mm-hmm. well i don't know like because from a from a different perspective on that same thought is that they kind of had the same sound for like five years like all of the all of the albums basically from 2112 all the way down to i would say probably hemispheres so mm-hmm. three albums straight it was pretty similar mm-hmm. and then permanent waves and moving pictures they're kind of moving in a different direction but it's still pretty similar so like you know at some point they had to change something well it's obvi- i mean like obviously they had um a very similar sound from a farewell to kings going into hemispheres because the end of that album goes into the next album with uh, Cygnus X1 because the the last track is Cygnus X1 Book 1 and then um, it goes into the next album, Cygnus X1 Book 2, Hemispheres. Then it goes into the album of Hemispheres. So they obviously, obviously continued, yeah, yeah, they continued the same sound and storyline. Yeah, but they kind of... I mean, when they come into Prague, they just sit there mm-hmm. and stay in it, which we've talked before about how, I don't is it justifiable to not change your sound long term? And if, like, I think that it is if you, if you may continue to make good music. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, a lot of people think 21, like 2112 is a big album yeah. that stands out for a lot of people in Russia's discography mm-hmm. as an album that changes the game, if you will. And, I don't disagree with you there, with with those people there, and I think that I don't know. I guess I guess that's where people, a lot of people, begin to latch on to Rush, and when you do that, it's fine to hear you know a few different albums that are all like cinematic prog stuff, and then but it is does get nice when you return to something with something that is a little catchier, like what we see coming in once they hit. Um, probably permanent waves. Permanent waves. You're right. Once we hit, they hit permanent waves and come into moving pictures. So I don't know. It's I find it to be justifiable in this case for me because I I just think they've made some pretty good music continually, even though they maintained a certain like a similar sound for a long time. But that's like the rush. It's also the rush sound. Yeah. Like it's not it's not something that we heard across classic rock all the time, and even prog rock of the time. And it's kind of surprising for a trio to come out and bring such a big sound and bring and create something like that. So I don't know. A lot of hands involved in understanding the you know it be, it's layered. It becomes more layered, and when we start to see things develop in a bit of a different way. And all in all, for instance, I've I've liked I you I like Rush, and I've always kind of had an affinity for for the Rush sound kind of thing. I thought it was interesting and fun and kind of cinematic and kind of like if you took Boston and just made it like interesting. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, and exactly. Put some, right. So I've always tried to be like people who are like, oh, I don't know about Rush. I'm like, just listen to some Rush, pal. Okay. And get going. So, but it's easier. What's weird is that 
maybe permanent waves is like an easy place to get people into it mm-hmm. and then move backwards as you go across the three prog rock albums that are a little more intimidating. That's how I feel about moving pictures. Yeah. Yeah. I think moving pictures is the album that I would direct somebody who doesn't really listen to rush. Like I would say that like, cause it'll start off with Tom Sawyer and they'll be like, Oh, I know that song. It's on the radio all the time. Mm-hmm. And then from there they'll get a pretty, I mean, it's not mainstream. It's still pretty proggy, but it's got more sense in it. And it's got more. Yeah. Limelight's um, kind of fun. Limelight's kind of yeah, fun. Yeah. That's a pretty popular one as well. Uh, my favorite is off of moving pictures. I'd say YYZ is my favorite because I like particularly the instrumentation of Rush. I don't, I'm not thrilled with Getty Lee's vocals. They're fine. I'm not thrilled with the uh, lyricism that they incorporate into their music. Like it's whimsical and fun, but I'm, I don't love it. So like YYZ is a really, really strong instrumental song um, because of the fact that it lets all three of the members of the group shine across different parts of the song. So I'll play my favorite song at heat. I just want to correct you. It's Y Y Z. It is Y Y Z. Z. Yeah. Hmm. I didn't. Which know is that. the British pronunciation of the letter Z. That makes sense. Even though they're Canadian, it's kind of weird. I Canadians say Z. Do they say Z too? I think so. No, they do. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not sure. Toronto is not French Canada, so potentially, potentially so. That song is kind of interesting too because it it has a groove that's actually like kind of standard rushy. You know what I mean? And it, once it hits it, but all that beginning is pretty jarring and it's really different and it doesn't seem like, I don't even know what to think of it. It's, it's very prog. It's pretty heavy. It is. And it's not like, um, it's, it really, I think dif- like goes beyond the time because when I listen to it, if I took the synth out, even I could think that that's a relatively recent, the synth to me ages it a little bit, mm-hmm. but it's just a really weird, like abrasive intro. That's kind of surprising to think about a band, Rush. yeah, mm-hmm. Rush or any any band who's, I mean, because they still kind of fit in a classic rock genre. Yeah, anyone coming into a song with that type of abrasion. Mm-hmm. Do you think that calling them the Canadian Pink Floyd would be fair? I think so. Okay, I was thinking that, but I wasn't sure because I mean, they with the concept album kind of thing, and then the prog rock. I think that those two things kind of make it make a little bit of sense. I don't think that they had as interesting of um, stories to tell that Floyd did. You know, I think Floyd went way deeper into the the concepts than what Rush did. And they were, I mean, like, I, I feel like Rush is more, like, with the lyricism and stuff, it's more like science than it is fantasy most of the time. But, um, yeah, I don't know. That... From the album I was talking about, the um, the one you hate, Hold Your Fire, I found uh, the song Tai Shan to be really interesting. The, oh, yeah. uh, the, the Chinese song mm-hmm. where it's like, hold your head to the sky and, and you'll become uh, like a god or something like that. I thought that song was pretty interesting. Well, it's nice that they don't like the ideas in lyricism and what and the story they're attempting to tell doesn't change. It's just the instrumentals that don't do it for me mm-hmm. from that point on, really. That makes sense. They said, uh, I, the lyric is, I stood at the top of the mountain and China sang to me. Mm. That's pretty good. That's a, that's a yeah. decent lyric. I think that they're probably not as diverse as Pink Floyd is. Yeah. I mean, the sound is, you know, it's, there's not, it's not as deep. But they also don't dive into what instrumentation can do in the same way Mm -hmm. you know they have they're defined by the trio and they work kind of within those bounds to an extent like they don't have a lot of changing in terms of the sound like what you hear in there you know pink floyd uses a lot of different sound effects you know 
and they they used various different instruments in different places, and they'll use and even samplings too. Samplings and yeah, and Rush is not like that. No, Rush utilizes the limitations of the members of their group, and then they and they work from there in a sense, you know. So they're not. They're just not as interesting in terms of, well, who knows what they could do next. It could be, you know, whatever, but it's not. You no. know, you kind of know what they're going to do, but they do a good job of it. So, Do you think they are um, more than Tom Sawyer, or do you think that, that that being their most well-known song, like their definitive song, if are they above that as a band or as Tom Sawyer? rush to who just but i mean to the public and also like for the group are you asking if that's like their peak or are they a better are they as a band better than what tom sawyer is again i think it's it depends on who you're asking because if you're asking like because they have a very very massive fan base like i read that some people would call their fan base like the star trek of music like mm. they're they're basically like Trekkies where they're like really really into the lore and everything about Rush. Are Rush so fans like, called Russians? They probably could be. Uh, like if you look at like um, what was the, I love you, man? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where like they're like all about Rush. They're like like doing fake like I slap at the bass thing. Mm-hmm. You know, like they're super into Rush, and I don't think they play Tom Sawyer in that movie. No, I don't think they do. I think I, they do. I think they do. I can't remember, but well, they play. They, they play other songs. Yeah, oh, they yeah. play other songs other than just. It's not Tom Sawyer on repeat. Yeah. So like the point is, is that like, like for a fan of Rush, which is a lot of very diehard fans, Tom Sawyer is probably just a a drop in the bucket. Mm-hmm. But to a mainstream like the somebody who doesn't listen to a whole lot of music in terms of like classic rock or anything like that, I would say probably Tom Sawyer is like the one song they are most likely to know and more than likely they probably like they could hear something and I'd be like, Oh, that kind of sounds like that Tom Sawyer song, but they probably couldn't tell you the name of another rush song. Yeah. A casual listener would probably like, that's the song that they know. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's true. But the thing is, is like they have many other songs that are really good that are also radio songs mm-hmm. that play on the radio and did play on the radio. Mm-hmm. Both so- both the beginning song, like the first two tracks from Permanent Waves are great examples. Yeah, of that. those are both songs that were played on the radio a lot. And I think that I um well, when you talk about Spirit of Radio as well, like that song is really interesting cuz it it like the shifts in the song are fun. Like, the breakdown in that song is one of my favorite parts of a Rush song. Mm-hmm. You know, when it breaks down to, like, a reggae beat. Like... I mean, that is my favorite song. You want to go ahead and play it? leaves a lot of room for the drums to expand which is pretty cool it is especially since neil Peart is so prolific so it's like sometimes it feels like the drums are really what's driving and not just mean rhythm rhythmically but like driving some of the it's like all of the songs are based around that sometimes and then things fill in around it that was a good example because the bass line follows the drums mm-hmm. that's not common no in music do you think that's because Neil Peart has an influence on one of the way that music sounds and he wants to, mm-hmm. you know, base it Show around off. what he knows? Mm-hmm. Seems to make sense. Yeah. While we're talking about this song, I have a little uh, boop boop a doo. Well, that sounds familiar. Uh, if you want to go to uh, three minutes, 50 seconds in that song. lyrics right there uh referencing the sound of silence by simon and garfunkel and 
I like the disturbed version better. I was gonna say, isn't that a disturbed song? <laughs> I expected you to say. Oh, that. you guys are the it's worst. It's not better though. No, I want, I want everyone fair. out there to know. No. It's not. No, no, no. I do have one more while we're here. Yeah, let's do it. Uh, the song "By Tor and the Snow Dog." <laughs> That sounds uh, very similar to uh, Cherub Rock, the intro. By Smashing Pumpkins. Yeah. The singer of Smashing Pumpkins, I'm blanking on his name. Billy Corgan. Yep. Yep. He uh, admitted that they just ripped off that from Rush. Well, that's cool. Yeah. He probably knew that nobody really listened to Fly By Night anyways. It's a really obscure song to borrow something from. The world is a vampire. That's what Billy said. He did say that. He did. We can talk about that on the Smashing Pumpkins episode. We'll never do. I liked uh, this song, Hand Over Fist, also, from uh, the album Presto, because um, he's, he's talking about rock, paper, scissors. Mm. You know that? Did you hear that in the words he said to the people? You want to read those lyrics for us? Hand over fist, paper around the stone. Scissors cut the paper, cut the paper to the bone. Hand over fist, paper around the stone. Scissors cut the paper, and the rock must stand alone. That is some of the dumbest lyricism I think I've ever heard in my entire life. It is great. It's so prolific, the rock stands That's alone. what happens when you let a drummer it's, I think it was lyrics. just his tribute to the cheese stands alone. The cheese stands alone? What's mm-hmm. that? You don't know that? That little thing when you used to play that game as a kid? The cheese stands alone? The cheese stands alone? It's a little song. The farmer in the dell? Mm. I don't know the cheese stands alone. You don't know that line? The no. cheese stands alone? Oh, I guess you guys must have been... You guys must have like went to... Uh, you know, preschools and such, where they didn't teach you to shame other children. We didn't go to preschool. I know you didn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, normally there's a kid who is left standing alone, and everyone gets to tell him that the cheese stands alone. That's harsh. Well, the world is harsh, friend. I thought the world was a vampire. <laughs> That's true. Oh, no. What is it? Could be anything. You need to stop fiddling so much. <laughs> <laughs> the world could be anything. Um, the Rush are a one-hit wonder in the U.S. Did you know that? That's not. That's pretty expected. Do you know what song is their only hit? Is it Limelight? It is not Limelight. It's Tom Sawyer. It is not Tom Sawyer. It is New World Man from the album Signals. That's stupid. <laughs> number twenty-one. No that's, other song cracked the top forty. That's wild. Tom Sawyer got to number forty-four in the United States of America. I wouldn't have guessed New World Man was. This nope, no, nobody else. I don't else think would. anyone would have guessed that. It's it's. I mean, that just is like one of those things where it kind of discredits the idea of a one-hit wonder. I mean, I do think that there is importance in it, but there's also like, they are a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame band. They are a Canadian Rock and Roll Hall of Fame band. They got to that way before they got to the U.S. one. I promise you that if you walked up to just about anybody on the street and you said, did you know that Rush is a one-hit wonder? They'd be like, yeah, Tom Sawyer is a pretty good song, man. Yeah, everybody (laughs) would say that. That's true. You're stupid. You want to talk about them being in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Uh, What what do you got? Well, they were eligible. In 98. Yep. And they didn't get in until 2012. Hmm. That's not good. Nope. Who inducted them? I don't know. I don't know. That's a good question. Do you know? Who inducted Rush into the Rock and Roll? It po- I mean, probably Cream. Oh, my yeah. Cream. I hope that so. was probably it. It's a record roundtable alum. It is Mr. Taylor Hawkins and Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters. Oh, that's odd. Uh, in 2013. That's weird. What? Well, I mean, he is a drummer. Yeah, yeah I'm sure he was pretty prominently uh, influenced by Mr. Neil. I would call that the new world man of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, where I would say, I wouldn't have guessed that even for a second. 
Yeah. Well, that's pretty cool, though. I suppose it's interesting. I don't know. It's just, that's it's kind of weird. Could have been other people. Could that's have been Dave. somebody that's Canadian. Could have been someone. Could have been Neil Young. That's true. That could is have true. been Pink Floyd. I think that it would be cool if they only let somebody that's already in induct somebody in. Who would have inducted the first person into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? Well, you gotta start now. You gotta start now. It has to be like the postman. Only a postman can <laughs> make another postman. God. Oh my. I think this goes against what Jared believes in everything ever. I think that their long songs are their best songs. Hmm. I think that when they are able to have a song that lasts for like 10, even sometimes 20, 20 minutes, minutes, then that means that they are doing a lot within that song. It's real proggy and weird, and they do a lot of interesting instrumentation on those songs. So like the really long ones tend to be like the really good ones. Sounds like a Floyd situation as well, does it not? Like the set, this, the Cygnus X1 that you were talking about mm-hmm. earlier... That book one, The Voyage from Farewell to Kings, is a pretty good track. Yeah. The the opening. Mm-hmm. Side A. Yeah. Side one. And then the, the La Villa Strangiato from Hemispheres, which is, I believe, a 10-minute long song, about 9 minutes, 35 seconds. Uh, that one's also pretty good off of that album. And then for 2112, of course, 2112 is the best song mm-hmm. on the album, and that one is like 20 minutes long. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an overture. It's an overture, you know? Right. Um, let's see for permanent. Yeah. I think that those, cause those three are the albums, 2112, Farewell to Kings and Hemispheres are the ones where they have like the really long songs throughout. And then from then on permanent waves, moving pictures, so on and so forth. Well, I guess moving pictures does have the camera eye, which is a 10 minute long song nearly actually. Yeah. It's about 11 minute long song. Otherwise, most of their songs stay below 10 minutes from there on because they kind of go in that more. Commercial E realm. Natural science is almost is what nine and a quarter something like that. Yeah. So it's relatively close. Do you think so? We we see here on these basically from twenty one twelve even through moving pictures, we see them employing um an album structuring technique very similar to Pink Floyd in terms of like and what we see in Prague today, for instance, with Godspeed and what have you. Mm-hmm. Where you have minimal, you don't have many songs, mm-hmm. yeah. And at each song, you've strung together, you really strung together like three or four ideas into one long song, and that becomes whatever it becomes. So, I don't know. Any, I guess, do you what? What are your thoughts on that? We still see it today in, in Prague, and I wonder if it's not if it's a if the current Prague idea of it is a progression because it kind of got get. Like, prog rock gets more cinematic as time goes on, mm-hmm. you know, and it becomes less... I mean, when we talk about Godspeed, for instance, there's no lyrics most of the time. And it just becomes a sound... Like, just a soundscape, you know? And it seems like it's just continually moving back and forth, you know, towards that over time. What do you think? There's a lot going on with that question. I think that you're probably right where they're just continuing on in the Prague, you know, like continuing that story of, um, of, uh, you know, having a long song progress. It's kind of the whole gig of it, I suppose. But, um, I don't know. It's, I don't know the answer. It's hard to say because there's not a lot of Prague. Like, there's not a lot of popular Prague right. anymore. Pro- like, Prague. Not to say that Prague doesn't exist. Prague is out there. Prague will always be out there. But there's not a lot of like Prague that is visible to the typical listener. So it's it's kind of hard to say. I don't know. They came in at like the end of a sweet spot for it, really, with Pink Floyd kind of ushering in a very heavy uh, presence in popular culture and in popular music. And then Rush kind of carrying on as well through the 80s. Because, well, you know... The Wall came out in 1980, for instance, and Pink Floyd's, I mean, we all know that after that it gets kind of questionable to a degree, and I think Rush is a pretty good pickup on where that left off into in the prog world. So, I think that they're, I mean, when I really think about it, I suppose, by the late, mid to late 80s, when they began making essentially pop music, prog was not really in the popular mind anymore. Right. 
So they really kind of the last great, if you will, in terms of sphere of influence. When did King Crimson stop making music? Oh, that's a good question. Because King Crimson is another prog band who is, mm-hmm. uh, you would be remiss if you didn't mention them on a prog related conversation. Uh, their first run was 68 to 74. Yeah. Then they got back together from 81 to 84. Then 94 to 03. Then 08 to 09. And then 2013 to present. So they're, they're still out there. They're yeah, still, they're still wiling. They're, King Crimson's four main albums were released between 69 and 71. That's mm-hmm. what I thought. So it's, this is even, you know, it's an early Floyd era, if right. you will. So it's kind of, I mean, that's when they, and that's like a couple different flavors. Now, King Crimson is an example of someone that was less, you know, like a lot of people will reference King Crimson, but if you hear someone reference King Crimson, you know they kind of have an idea of what they're talking about outside of just popular music. Right. I mean, it's not a, it's not a reference that gets thrown around by people who listen to the radio all day. Right. Yeah, King Crimson doesn't really have hit. Right. A lot of people, are, well, I don't know. I would say people like King Crimson well, big prog fans probably like King Crimson even more than Rush. Rush is more of like, I don't. This sounds like I don't like them, but they're kind of the introductory to prog music. Almost, they are. They are the the beginner's guide to prog in a lot of ways. Yeah, and it's also because they're like later on, and they kind of are continuing a thing. It's like the it, the novel, like the novelty in terms of it is gone Mm -hmm. you know it's not as like shocking and different king crimson is like really a lot of times when i like talk about or hear it mentioned you know you think about king crimson as someone who's like really changing the idea of something right and bringing something very different and kind of like wacky into into rock music and rush just didn't really do it you know rush just did they made good songs that were and in fact in terms of like the lyrical content and like the stories until they kind of developed into their own, which is after fly by night, really, uh, even though I think that's a pretty all right album, they stole stuff like ideas for songs from other places. I mean, they're not the first people to write about Lord of the Rings, right? You know, Zeppelin wrote about Lord of the Rings and, you know, other bands in the seventies wrote about Lord of the Rings. So it's like, you're attempting to use the popular avenues that have already been used to establish the fact that you're a band who enjoys, like sci-fi and mysticism kind of thing. So they, they they didn't really do anything crazy or different or something that's like, it's just more of a continuation. And I guess some of it could be bringing in some stuff. I don't know. I mean, the science idea of it, the idea that it is more of like a, instead of like an ephemeral kind of reflectionary idea in terms of songwriting, like what we see from Pink Floyd, it is more of like a nerdy scientific kind of thing it's pretty nerdy right but other than that like what they're bringing is nothing is nothing super out there you know it's it's just it's just it's good and it's but it's just a continuation of other things and making maybe making very small tweaks and changes or utilizing the minimalist aspect of like your group to try to show that you can do something without having to have all the noises or something like that you know Mm mm-hmm Jared, you haven't said your favorite song yet. I uh, I don't know. I mean, I know which one I want to pick, but I, th- I was thinking it would go a different way. So um, I think that I... Oh, man. Dang. I think I want to pick Time Stand Still. Uh, I think that's the song I want to pick. I really like the song Closer to the Heart. I think that it is my... like. Tom Sawyer is the Rush song, and it is a song you can listen to over and over again. And it is like if you want to tell, tell, like show somebody Rush, that's the song you show them. I think "Closer to the Heart" is a better ballad song. It kind of reminds me a little bit of "Let My Love Open the Door," um, just in terms of like sweet um, balladry song. But I think "Time Stands." I listened to "Time Stands Still" this week like six times. I just wanted to keep going back and listening to it. Uh, it has Amy Mann in it from the band Till Tuesday, who sang the song um, Voices Carry, which is a pretty good 80s song. She also sang the song Two Horses from the Tim and Eric Billionaire movie. Yep. She also has a, her own solo career yes. outside of that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's the song I'm going to pick, Time Stand Still. It's, it's a good song. Time Stand Still. Freeze this moment. 
that his voice sounds the best in that song. Like, I don't know. It it soars. So I don't know. I know you hate that album, so I don't want to. I know everyone. I mean, I don't hate. I don't hate that album. I just don't. It's not. I would it's never. It's not li- the one I that would, appeals to you, the right? Most. And yeah. I, I will, to be honest with you, I'll never listen to it. But yeah. it's not out of hatred. It's yeah. just out of not the style. No, it's. I mean, it's so clear the era that that was in. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely clear in the production work, yeah. a lot of in the guitar like tones. Yeah, it's just drenched with. I'm a rock band, and now I'm making 80s pop music. Mm-hmm. That was, I mean, that was really what a lot of people criticized them for, especially like a lot of their really big fans during the 80s were like pissed, mm-hmm. just pissed that they started doing like new wavy, poppy, synthy kind of stuff because they were like, this isn't Rush. Um, and then it was kind of like not until like the 90s ish era where they kind of returned to like a guitar based rock music. Um, and I don't know that they ever really got back to the point where they had the same level of uh, fans because of that shift that they made into like a synthy pop 80 sound. What's sad about it is that, you know, you could have. You could have employed those types of sounds in a way that didn't that wasn't just an entire commercial. Full on commercial sound type of thing, you mm-hmm. know, like it does, you know, a lot of. When you think of the 80s, like if you think of guitar tones, a lot of people think of like a lot of chorus and you, and things are really shimmery. But you know what? Like The Cure used a lot of that. Mm-hmm. And The Cure is like pop music. Yeah. But it sounds like interesting and different and it and people it hits it affects people differently. But this doesn't have like any source like sort of grounding element to it that's that shies away from commercialism for me. Mhm. And that's kind of where I have where I struggle with it, especially with the man who, you know, I mean, Prague is not a commercial. No, it, it, it's just not a commercial. No type of music, and that, and when you, it's just like, how do you get from twenty one twelve to that? And I don't have an answer. It's it's definitely a commercial thing. I would agree with you on that one. Uh, it's kind of weird where, like, almost today, you would expect it to be potentially more potentially more um possible for prog rock music to be popular in this weird sphere of like like superheroes are cool now and nerd stuff is cool now and it's cool to be a nerd so like you'd think that like almost if you put a rush sounding lyric into a song people would be like oh that's really cool i like that but like at the time no there's no way that you would ever have a rush album that would be like mainstream appeal but then they got the taste of mainstream, just the richness of a Tom Sawyer. And they said, oh, boy, I got to keep doing this. So they did Signals. And then they got another taste. And they got New World Man, their only their only hit, which I would have never expected. Right. But still. And then from there, that's when they started going down a synthy route. So like once they realized that if they went in a slightly more popular direction, they would get some fame. They were like, oh, OK, we can go in that direction. And yeah. then when they realized that nobody wanted it, they were like, let's go back to what we were doing. How about that? And then nobody really wanted them at that point. So they kind of, I mean, they really kind of messed up the popularity they had by doing what they did. Yeah, you alienated your audience, basically, by, you know. And it's not like, what's really odd about it in a way, too, is to think that you're not employing much, like sounds that are that different. You already have begun using synth, although you've used it in a way that's not just some type of like layer of nothingness you know what i mean it, you use it in a way where there's melody to the synth or you add something specific to a, a section of the song where something else is missing and now you've just turned it into background and so you're not even utilizing your your instruments in, in a similar fashion i actually thought that like signals it kind of is the in-between album i suppose yeah in there and i didn't think it was that bad but I don't know. It's kind of weird. I guess it would. It would seems much better outside of the context of what happens afterwards, for me. If I knew if they had done signals and then maintained a sound on signals, even though it was a little like more mainstream and poppy, it hadn't full blown gotten rid of everything. And and if they had maintained that, they maybe would have been able to kind of just continue on for a little bit, and then they could still revisit if they wanted to. But just continuing to push it all the way, I don't know. I mean, we know it wasn't great for hardcore Rush fans. 
like that wasn't hard to figure out, but it didn't do anything for sales either, apparently. Yeah. Did you listen to that EP that I put in, the feedback EP? No. Okay. So it's an entire EP of cover songs that Rush did. And one of them was uh, For What It's Worth by Buffalo Springfield. Oh. And the other one was The Seeker by The Who. Uh, there's other songs, Mr. Soul, which I believe is a Neil Young cover. And there's other, I think they even covered Cream, maybe. Yeah, Summertime Blues on there. Yep. But yeah, They uh, did Crossroads, which is Cream, but originally Robert Johnson. So, But uh, I read a review talking about it, and they basically were talking about how it was the most genuine one of the more genuine cover eps because they put like a lot of effort into it and they didn't i mean they made it rush but they didn't you know kind of weezer it yeah weezer it that's fair but i like the cover of uh for what it's worth i thought it was pretty good the crossroad cover was really good well that rush is a sound like the sound that they have is a sound that would be interesting to hear other songs transcribed into Mm -hmm. as compared to weezer where it's just like Take your song and turn it into pop bullshit. Right. But even so, as we know on the Weezer album, they didn't even stray that far from the originals. So Mm, it's like, you know, it's just junk. But if you Rushify a song, that's kind of interesting. Do you want to play it? you want to play that? Play for what it's worth? There's something happening here. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun over there Telling me I've got to beware I think it's time we stop Children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down Certainly a little different. The bass is like super present in that thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Speaking of that, it's kind of weird to see a front man that's a bassist. I like it. Yeah, me too. He sings and he plays bass. And the bass lines are not simple no, in Rush complex. songs. Right. So, kudos to you, high-pitched man. I think that's my, my biggest question, though. And this is apples to oranges, and I know it. Who's the best instrumentalist? In the band? Yeah. Ooh. It's You can't, and don't play the game where, like, I say Getty Lee because I used to play bass, and... It's Tyler, pro- you say life song because you play guitar, and Cody plays. Yeah, until he says Neil Pert because he likes to play drums. Like, genuinely, who is the one who can play their instrument in the most interesting and unique way? It's probably Neil Pert. It's got to be Neil yeah, Pert. I, I it's Neil Pert. And I think it's not only is it that he plays the drums in a, in such a different way, an interesting way. Like you know, it's not like the bass lines are not complex and interesting, and the guitars are not interesting and have some complexity. But they're not. But that's like standard. Yes. You know the thing that we don't hear normally is the super interesting, like thematic drum pieces. Correct. And so that like the legacy of that really stands out. And when you ask someone about Rush, if they don't mention the fact that they like Geddy Lee because of his voices and he looks like uh, Ichabod Crane, huh. you know, then the person that they're mentioning is Neil Peart. And like the legacy of him as the artist in Rush is the legacy that stands out the most. In terms of all of the people in the group, I think he probably contributed the most as well because not only was he the drummer, but he was the main lyricist. So, you know, he he did not. I mean, some of the more important parts of the music with the drumming and also the what you're listening to in terms of lyrics. So, he's probably able to drive what he wanted to do, but in both ways, both musically and lyrically, obviously. So, yeah, I think no doubt. I th- I don't think. It- like I think that question is worth pondering on, but I don't think you can ever come up with a different answer. I don't. I don't think so either. Now, so I want to talk very briefly about the the "I Love You Man" thing. We didn't. We talked about it just a little bit, but that's one one of the catalysts for me liking Rush. Um, I mean, I knew the song Tom Sawyer before watching that movie, but it made me like I listened to Tom Sawyer so many times after seeing that movie, and then it kind of got me listening to them more. So when we were watching those videos this week, uh, Dax and I, there was a video, uh, a clip what from videos? where they were talking about all of the um, references, TV references, cartoons and stuff that have brought up Rush throughout. Um, yeah, he, he mentioned it earlier. Okay. Um, but there was a clip from uh, Freaks and Geeks 
where Jason Siegel is playing the drums in a garage and playing a Rush song. And then, all those years later, he has all of those references to Rush. So it's just like, well, actually, it was what was Freaks and was who made Freaks and Geeks? Uh, was his name? Was it? It wasn't Judd Apatow, was it? Yeah, it, it was. was. Yeah, okay, because he's Apatow. the one that did "I Love You, Man," right? Yes. Yes. So that's the same using the same actor in your television program and then in your movie to because they expanded on it way more in "I Love You, Man." I mean, they like Rush is pre- pretty prominently featured They're throughout pretty, that whole yeah. film. They're pretty important to the movie, right? So, yeah, that's I just like that was something that um, watching that clip, I was like, "That's Jason Siegel, who later, like all those years later, does the same exact homage to Rush." You know, so it kind of meant something. Maybe it's just maybe Judd Apatow just likes Rush. I would imagine he probably does. It seems like that is the case. While we're talking about like little pop culture stuff, can you, Caleb, uh, pull up on YouTube uh, Rush Live in Holland with South Park? started their concert that is quite the way to start a concert right there interesting 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 so it turns i I read a little bit here about 2112 and like the shift to Prague. and what it turns out is you know they had not super great performing albums prior to in terms of sales of the album itself and in terms of ticket sales for shows and the label was pressuring them and was like you need to make more commercial music and basically they're just like no and they just continued on making prog but i guess they had some discussions and uh were wondering if they were going to uh make another mini led zeppelin record or whether they're going to do what the, what they're going to do and continue forward when whatever happens happens that's what it says so it's just like i don't i think it's really weird that late 70s the album is still like the label is still pushing you to make Led Zeppelin albums when you're a prog rock trio from Canada. Yeah, I don't know where that conversation starts. Right. I mean, it, I mean it it does make sense because if you look at their initial two albums, like Fly By Night really is just like a well, so is Rush their debut. I don't know yeah, if you listen to much of their their debut record. It, it's very it's just classic it's, rock. It's just classic rock over. bullshit. Yeah. Yep. It's it's Led it's either the the thing that I quantify that as is you could either quantify it as not as good Lep Zeppelin or a little bit better ACDC. That's what I'm saying. It's like a smash of them. You just smash them together and you've created one entire album that's just that garbage. Yeah. I'm trying to think of what... I mean, ACDC only makes sense because, again, it's the the high register. Yeah, and well, it's also just like the simple for instance, in the song we started with, you got a little bit of a... Yeah, you've got a little bit of an intro build up and then you end that to begin your verse with just two chords, two power chords. That is like the most common go-to thing in in hard rock. And it's just like, what, what are you doing? What are you doing? You know, it's, it's, it's like, be, it's just being a dead horse at that point. Really? That sound is. So their decision to just say, forget the label and move along is really, it's kind of pinnacle in a way. When you think about, I mean, it's hard to talk about the legacy because we know the commercial legacy of Rush is not amazing, you know, but I like to think that they did a lot, particularly with the talent that they had in terms of of music, you know, and continuing Prague and, and just saying, we're just going to do what we want to do. You know, I don't know. 
I mean, can you all think of anyone else into in the late seventies and eighties who's just like, we're going to continue to do this. You know what I mean? Can you think of anyone who stands out outside of moving into post-punk and hardcore punk, you know, outside of that scene in the more classic traditional scene that just said like, forget you, we're not going to run commercial eighties garbage, you know, cause even late seventies are starting to hear some of that transition and we're just going to do what we want to do and continue making music that was really worthwhile as compared to the, what they could have done instead. Do you have anybody? I don't think I can think of anyone. Hmm. I'm not sure. No, I can't think of anyone. I don't have one in. The, I'm sure I there's something. The top yeah. of my head now. I'm sure there is, but I mean, like, it's not off the top of the head. Just, just for that decision alone, I think that it, you know you can see kind of the importance of maintaining something during that time period. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad Rush was there to do it. Yeah, I guess. Good job, Rush. Yeah, way to go, boys. That trio did it. And the Canadians done something. You said it like it's the first time that it's ever happened. It's not. I like Justin. He's cool. All right. Uh, before we close out, I'm going to make sure that I say, because I don't, I don't feel like I have enough time in the outro song, on our website, we've been doing new articles. It's exciting stuff where we're having new people who are not associated with this specific Record Roundtable podcast. They're writing articles about music. Uh, I would recommend checking out our website for that new thing and see if you like what you're seeing. We should be updating that relatively frequently. All of the members, hopefully at some point will write articles for that. Um, But there are other people who maybe you don't know who have not been on the show who are going to be hopefully writing more articles. So hopefully we'll be continuing to put more content out in that realm. Recordroundtable.com. Yes recordroundtable.com check out our website and all that stuff i I wanted to make sure i said all of that outside of the outro music because it would have taken way too long and it would have taken about the length of probably i would say like one of their 20 minute long songs like it would be take it 21 12 yeah for me to actually announce all that so yeah thank you for listening to this week's edition of record roundtable this week we were talking about rush And next week, we're going to be talking about The Killers. Check out our Patreon. Check out our website. Check out all of our social media. Thank you for listening, and goodbye. And the men who hold high places Must be the ones who start To mold a new reality Closer to the heart